Why do you want to fight? This is the fight game with Demond Cotton. Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of the Fight Game. I am your host, Damon Cotton, and I say it each and every week, but I have an exciting show for you today, and there's so much to talk about in combat sports. Where do we begin? Before I go any further, let me tell you the guests that we have coming up on today's show. First up, we're going to have Brian Salmon from News3LV right here in Vegas. We're going to be talking about some of Brian's favorite fights ever. I mean, UFC boxing, he's covered some of the biggest events here in Vegas, and I just want to talk to him. It's just a laid-back show today, so let's talk to Brian about some of his favorite fights and see what he's got to say. And then we're just going to be going further and further into the world of sports, not only combat sports, but we're also going to be talking to my good buddy from UNLV. He's doing big things in Sioux City, Iowa now jason toctasian and i mean he is a whiz when it comes to all things football uh, i'm just going to keep saying soccer but we're going to be talking some soccer world cup with jason he's going to break it all down i know that the action's already started and the matches are going on just continuously as we speak and all but hey man he's going to break it down at least give me the soccer novice a little bit of a breakdown a little bit of what to look forward to and that's what you have to look forward to on today's show now let's ring the bell Let's take it back to last Saturday at the UFC Apex, UFC Fight Night, Derek Lewis versus Sergei Spivak, and there's always a little air that gets sucked out of you a little bit. You know, the the balloon is deflated once a main event is not going to happen for any event. And that's what happened at the UFC Apex on Saturday. Derek Lewis caught a bit of a bug is what we were told. And he was not able to compete in that heavyweight main event against Sergei Spivak. But man, I say it each and every time I go, and I mean it, the UFC Apex does not disappoint, though. I mean, of course, you want to see the main event. You wanted to see the two big heavies go in there and bang with each other. But hey, you got some of that in the new co-main event with the Vanilla Gorilla versus Waldo Cortez Acosta. I mean, Cortez Acosta said after the fight that Chase Sherman's head must be made of metal or something because he was hitting him with everything that he has. I mean, so you still had some great fighting there. You still had some great action inside the cage. The co-main event that was bumped up to the main event, Kennedy Nzinchuku, who had to take on Ian Kutabela. And I mean, come on. Now, this fight is light heavyweight division. They didn't they didn't move it up to five rounds. You know, they kept it at a three-round fight, but it was the main event. And the African Savage came out, and he delivered. At the second-round stoppage by TKO, he, just talking to him after the fight, when he's talking about the tendencies and watching his opponent and watching the film, you, it, it all worked out perfectly for him because he got taken down, even got hit with a sweet judo hip toss you know from Cutabela and it was a good toss he got taken down but he adjusted talked to his corner after that first round came out made the necessary adjustments and started dropping bombs started dropping bombs I mean catching him with just about every strike that he threw in the second round and got the stoppage there but the standout of the card the standout of UFC fight night that that's the guy that I have to say he's got next that's going to be Jack Della Maddalena 
I mean, this guy, the Australian, talked to some of his team after the after the card. I mean, just a great guy. And also, he's got to be up next. That Australia card that's going to be on there, he said it after the cage. Let's get him on that card. He's ready for pay-per-view. He won the Contender Series a few years back. I want to say uh, the Contender Series number five, he was a contestant on that. So this guy, he's been around the UFC orbit for a little bit, but it's time to get him on a pay-per-view because I think that this kid is ready for pay-per-view without a doubt. Now let's move into some pro wrestling and we're going to start before we get to Survivor Series War Games. We're going to talk AEW Full Gear and I'm just going to start with the main car because honestly the race from the Apex that I had to get back home to start Full Gear, I got there just in time for the main card. And we're going to start with the first match on that card. Luchasaurus versus Jungle Boy in a steel cage match. And I said it last week, hey, this has got to be the blow-off match. This feud, we got to get these two away from each other. The tag team breakup, we all know it. Not everybody's going to be a Shawn Michaels or a Marty Jannetty. Both of guys can go on to have very successful careers, but they need to split now and go their separate way. We see this now. They're calling him more Jack Perry than they were Jungle Boy on commentary in the match. And it was a good steel cage match. Christian Cage, I didn't like that he just was able to open the cage. I do like the WWE rules more that if your feet touch the ground outside of the cage you know you win the match but you know that's that's really semantics Dungle Boy he you know he gets some color him and him and Luchasaurus are having a great match inside the steel cage my only critique the finish he gets Luchasaurus on top of the table does a touching tribute takes a moment you know his father Luke Perry we can see the emotion in Jungle Boy he takes the 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 elbow drop off of the top of the steel cage, puts Luchasaurus through the table, and then puts him in a submission hold. And Luchasaurus taps out. He's supposed to be this big monster, this big, what do we call it, like, this a creature almost, not a wrestler, a creature, a monster. And he taps out? At least you can say, man, he jumps from 20 feet, puts his elbow right through his heart. No way he's getting up in three seconds. But then to put him in the, snap, the snare trap and have him tap out, what is that? That's just some of the booking decisions where I'm like, who booked this? You jump off the top of the steel cage, get the one, two, three. You don't need to put him in a submission after that. But, hey, still a good match. Just a little bit on the finish. What are we doing? And then after that, we had the AEW World Trios Championship match versus the champions, the defending champions, Death Triangle, taking on the Elite, who made their long-awaited return. AEW is not telling us what they're returning from, but boy, are we excited about the return for the elite. And they come out to Kansas's hit, Carry On, My Wayward Sons. There'll be peace when you are done. And I'm just going to stop right there. We all know the song. I don't have that Tony Khan money to sing that song and get hit with those rights, you know. So, but we get the point. AEW, they welcome their heroes, honestly, their founding fathers, the elite, to the ring. Thunderous applause. I mean, the entrance alone, BTE is back. The elite, the, the elite. Carry on my wayward sons, taking them out to the ring. So you knew that this was a big deal in AEW. And when you have the Lucha Bros against the Young Bucks, just have them start out the match. I know it's the choreograph scene that they do in almost every match, but put a little sprinkle on it each time. Some people don't like it, but all four of them, hit their moves, hit their moves, fall down to the ground, kip back up, and the crowd goes nuts. And some people may say, hey, this is just choreography. But the people who like it, love it. The people who it's for, love it without a doubt. So sometimes you just have to say, stop being a hater and just enjoy the show. 
but I didn't see this coming in the match because the action is going to be great. Kenny Omega, Pac, the, the standoffs that those two had, their individual one-on-one time in the ring, great. When it comes to the ring hammer, we saw it before with Pac. He gives the timekeeper's hammer to Phoenix, and Phoenix doesn't want to use it. But you see that 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 hesitancy that you saw a few weeks ago when Pac tried to give him the hammer. You know, I thought that was going to come back into play, and that was going to cause Death Triangle to lose the match, but it didn't. Death Triangle retains, and that shocked me. But wait, there's more. After Death Triangle retains those trios championships, you find out that it's going to be a best of seven series. Now, am I a big fan of a best of seven series, especially if it wasn't announced beforehand? Because if we're going to keep kayfabe here, shouldn't Death Triangle be mad at the fr- at the at the front office? Hey, why are you guys like protecting your boys? We win the match, and now you spring on a, a best of seven series. Death Triangle and kayfabe should be pissed about this. They didn't know about this conditions. What's the point? They could have gauged out, maybe strategized. Maybe they'll maybe they'll know when to take a week off. I don't know. But a best of seven series, I'm all in because whenever these guys are in the ring, it's going to be money. And we're just going to skip around the card here because we don't have that much time today, to be honest. Going to go to the Fatal 4-Way Ring of Honor World Championship match that saw Brian Danielson taking on Chris Jericho, taking on Claudio Castagnoli, taking on Sammy Guevara. And this one was out of doubt. I knew that this one was going to go exactly the way it did. Chris Jericho reigning tall as the Ring of Honor World Heavyweight Champion. And no notes for this match, actually. No notes. I know what you're saying. Yes, I'm not the biggest Sammy Guevara fan in the world, but Brian Danielson, Claudio Castagnoli, they're going to put on a great match. When you get those two in the ring together, it's already going to elevate it up a little bit more. And then you've got Chris Jericho. Yes, Is he the Chris Jericho he once was? No, but he's a grizzled vet, and he knows what he's doing inside the ring. So great stuff. Hey, it's hard to pull off the multi-man matches, especially when you want to make each guy look strong. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the triple threat for the TNT Championship. But that fatal four-way, no notes. Soraya versus Britt Baker, DMD. Now, this is where... Some matches, I'm not saying that it didn't deserve to be on the card, but this is one of those matches where you're looking at the card because this was a long card. It's maybe this could have been cut. Did we necessarily need this match? And I'm going to say maybe no, maybe not on this pay-per-view. Soraya, she has to come back, you know, the long layoff, but just it wouldn't hidden like that. Let's be honest. Let's keep it a buck. It wouldn't hidden like that. And that's not Soraya's fault. She's been off. She's been out for five years. Kudos to Britt Baker for carrying her through the match. You can see at times that, hey, she's getting a little winded. She doesn't have her win there. Got to shake off the ring rust. And that's not her fault. But just for a cart that was over three hours, sometimes you got to pick. You got to trim some of that fat and just say, did we need that match on this card? And that's a match that I'm going to go to and say, maybe we didn't need it on this card. The TNT Championship match, Wardlow versus Samoa Joe versus Powerhouse Hobbs. I've got to say, I said it last week. I didn't think that you could take that championship off of Wardlow because since he's gotten it, he hasn't done anything with it. So now that you're going to have Samoa Joe, a double champion in AEW, I don't know what that says for Samoa Joe, but I do I do think that it says for Wardlow, hey, man, we tried to put the title on you. It's just not working. Maybe it could be like that Intercontinental Championship in WWE. It's that stepping stone to something more. Maybe it could be. Maybe this is his his leap into the title picture in AEW. And many are saying it, and I'm going to agree with them too. Maybe this was the match of the night. The title match for the AEW Interim 
World Championship in the women's division. Tony Storm versus Jamie Hayter, and they put on a banger. Tony Storm, one of the best women's wrestlers in the entire world to me. Jamie Hayter, one of the homegrown stars in AEW, and kudos to AEW for this one, getting the booking right, putting the title on Jamie Hayter because the crowd is behind her. Dr. Britt Baker coming out, you know, supporting her stablemate. And now you've got the story built right in there. Jamie Hayter, give her that baby face push. She's got the perfect heel to be going against. You know, Britt Baker, all she has to do is give her the, after the coronation, give her the Triple H thumbs down that he gave Randy Orton. And then you've got, you've got a baby face right there. Jamie Hayter, Tony Storm put on a great match but something that I do want to talk about not even the action in the match gotta lose the interim title on that women's championship there is no reason for the you can't bounce you can't bounce it from interim to interim that's not how it works not even in the UFC you win the interim title and then you fight for that undisputed championship you know you can't just keep defending the interim title after a while it's either the champs back or not so that's why I kind of didn't think they would take the title off of Tony Storm at this point, because you can't just be fighting over the interim title. Eventually, you have to be the undisputed world champion. But let's see where they go with Jamie Hayter there. And if Thunder Rosa isn't back in, let's say, a month or two, make her the official AEW Women's Champion. And I just want to jump straight into the main event. The AEW World Championship. The devil himself, MJF, taking on John Moxley. And MJF, he's as good as he says he is. I mean, is he hyping himself up a little too much? Yes, but I love the character work that he puts into it. But he goes out there with John Moxley, has a great match. The tombstone onto the apron, sells his knee like crazy. Even in his bit of a post of his post-match press conference scrum whatever you want to call it where he berates the media and walks out still selling the apparent knee injury moxley putting him in a figure four leg lock william ringle says hey man you don't need to use that dynamite ring and it's like man he's listening to regal but towards the end of the match sir william ringle regal gives him a pair of brass knuckles and he clobbers john moxley with the brass knuckles and they gave me exactly what i did not want to see I know that MJF is the biggest heel in the industry. I don't need him to have William Regal on his side. It was the swerve that we all saw coming, and it was the swerve that I did not want to see. But I want to see where they go from here because, like I said last week, it'll be interesting for a while. For the first two or three weeks, they're going to be cutting up promos galore. We're going to have to get the why would William Regal turn on the Blackpool Combat Club. That's going to be interesting. But after a while, how are they going to elevate this? And I'll just say it. If we had CM Punk in this storyline instead of John Moxley, it would have made a hundred it would have made much more sense it would have been the correct move to make but yeah it feel like it was just plug in place no matter who the AEW champion was going to be at the time they still told the same story they wanted to tell with MJF and I'm not saying it's the bad decision to put the title on him because he's white hot had to put the title on him but just in that match against that champion I would have wanted more heel build up instead of the swerve that we all saw coming and that didn't deliver as much for me and when we come back, we're going to be talking to Brian Salmon from News 3LV. Don't go anywhere. This is the fight game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to the fight game with Iman Cotton.
And I'm pleased to introduce my next guest. You know him from News 3LV right here in town in Vegas, Brian Salmon. Brian, now you are one of those, I'm going to say a UFC historian because you've been around the <laughs> UFC in Vegas, at least. The new iteration of the UFC, longer than anybody that I know, man. So I can't wait to talk to you. Uh, you, you laughed a little bit. I'm not trying to call you, you old. You call me old. I'm you not calling you old. old. I'm not calling you old. I'm just saying you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do know what I'm talking about. This is for sure. I mean, when you had your, like, your, what, what did you call them back when you were at ABC here in town? When you were, like, stepping inside the cage? What was that segment called? Tap Out of the Week. Go on YouTube and check it out, Tap Out of the Week. That was a fun segment, man. I mean, I, I literally got in there inside the octagon, inside, uh, like, a cage or a ring at some of the uh, extreme couture with some of the best fighters in the UFC, from Randy Couture to Vanderlei Silva to Forrest Griffin to Rashad Evans. I mean, everybody, man. So that was a great segment. A lot of good times. See, exactly, tap out of the week. Who was the one who, who applied this submission like the hardest? One, some brothers like, hey, man, not that tight. Oh, yeah, there are a few of those, man. Like, one of the one that Rashad Evans did in the very first episode, he did a Kimura on me. And think about it, like, you're giving this guy, like, the prime way of, of putting a submission attempt on you, and those ones kind of hurt the joint. That one, but really, honestly, the one that really hurt the most, and it's not even supposed to hurt, but he's just strong, was Vandalay Silva. The axe murderer, man. And he put me in a, um, a rear naked choke, and he's kind of talking me through it. I think that one's on ta on uh, YouTube as well. But he he squeezed. I tapped out quick, but you could still feel. It. I'm like, goodness gracious, my my throat, my larynx, I think is bruised. <laughs> was you on the verge? Was you on the verge of passing out? No, 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 no. I didn't try to keep on too long. I, mean, I tapped out very quick. It's, I'm not trying to hold up, you know, kind of let my audience know what's going on. But I mean, it hurts that quick. You only had on for two or three seconds, and it hurt that quick. I'm like, oh, hey, 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 TV. TV, brother. <laughs> All right, Brian. So, man, the reason I'm having you on, like I said, you're a historian of the UFC. So I want to talk talk me through some of your favorite fights of all time. You know, a fun Thanksgiving episode. So let's just talk about some of your favorite fights. I mean, we can go as far back as you want to. Okay. And it has to be MMA, UFC, or can I throw boxing in there as well? Oh, you can throw boxing in there as well. Everything's allowed on the fight game. Okay, I appreciate that. I, I kind of thought so, but... We're on the UFC train, so okay. First of all, I'll say I, for UFC, my very favorite fight was probably Anderson Silva when he won the middleweight title versus Rich Franklin. That was at Mandalay Bay, and that was the second fight in the UFC. I um I just missed that makes me mad. I just missed watching his first fight against Chris Levin. It was over at the Hard Rock. You know, you have the Hard Rock in Vegas now, which is the Virgin Hotel, which is crazy. But anyway. It was Anderson Silva's second fight in the UFC, Mandalay Bay. And I just remember he had Rich Franklin in one of those Muay Thai plums. And he was ragdolling, just tossed him all over the ring. He, he kneed him in his nose, broke his nose. I remember they showed his nose on the big screen inside of Mandalay Bay, and it was crooked. I just remember thinking to myself, this guy is a monster. And immediately he became my favorite fighter in the UFC. I remember going back home and, and just trying to watch the um, video over and over and over again because back then they used to let us record the pay-per-views uh, back at the station. They would give us a link and we'd be able to record them. It wasn't like something we had to pay for or anything like that. So that's probably my favorite UFC fight. And as far as boxing is concerned, really my, one of my favorite events I've ever attended, whether it be any sport, was Floyd Mayweather versus Ricky Hatton over at the Instant Grand Garden Arena. Uh, one, because I've, I've always been real cool with Floyd. He's been good to me. His people have been really good to me. And the atmosphere that was there 
because they had so many Brits that were here in town for that fight, probably like 20,000, just a ridiculous amount. Anytime you walk through MGM, you hear them uh, singing that song. There's no only one. Ricky had 10, you know, that walking in a hat in Wonderland. And they would sing that throughout the entire, the entire hotel, the entire hotel. And the arena was bananas. It's like a soccer match. Speaking of World Cup is going on right now, but it's like a soccer match inside there. And then when Floyd knocked him out in the 10th round, man, it was just, that was the most electric atmosphere that I, I've probably ever been a part of. And this is including Super Bowls and everything else, man. Like that, that fight was fantastic. Both of them undefeated. And uh, obviously, you know how that went. Uh, Floyd's O remained, and Ricky Hatton's O had to go. All right, I'm glad you brought up two fights that I actually remember very well. So I'm going to start back with Anderson Silva versus Rich Franklin. Did you, had you had heard of Anderson Silva before he joined the UFC at that point? Yeah, I mean, somewhat, because being that I'm a historian, as you like to put it, that I'm old as dirt, uh, I remember Pride. I've actually covered a Pride fight before. So and Pride used to have fights here in Las Vegas. So I had heard of Anderson Silva. Uh, I had, hadn't watched, like, a ton of his fights or anything like that. But he put himself on the map really quickly in the UFC with that fight against Chris Lieben. I don't know if you remember that one. Oh, yeah, I remember that one as well because Chris Lieben was like a fan favorite. All that, some tattoos, colorful hair. You know, he's coming, he's coming out guns blazing. Chris Lieben was a fan favorite for me, yes. Yeah, man. Anderson Silva put him away quick. It was like in the first round in like 30 seconds or something like that. Like, it was just bananas. And I was like, oh, goodness gracious, this guy's pretty good. So, yeah, no, I heard of him, but I, I didn't – you know, know that he was as good as he was. All right, again, we're talking to Brian Salmon from News 3 LV. But, hold on, talking about Anderson Silva, like, did you think that, hey, after he won that title, like, this guy's going to dominate, like, that reign that he went on? Because for me, I thought Rich Franklin had him, you know, obviously, you know, not knowing too much about Anderson Silva. It's like, Rich Franklin, man, he's got the story, you know, the underdog teacher, you know, former teacher. And then it's just like, hey, man, go back to teaching after this because he was never the same after that. Oh, no, he definitely wasn't. It was wild is that Rich Franklin could beat everyone but Anderson Silva. Like, kind of one of those things, almost like Robert Whitaker can't beat Israel Adesanya, but he can beat everybody else. Rich Franklin would beat other fighters, but against Anderson Silva, it wasn't even close. Like, he, he thought he could out-muscle him, and that's back before guys really had super technique. Like, Anderson Silva was, like, probably the first super technical fighter, especially Muay Thai, and he also had, you know, the BJJ, where you get to admit guys, but, yeah, man, he... he I don't know necessarily know if I thought that he would be as dominant as he was. I mean, no one can really predict that. But I, I knew that he was the most exciting fighter in the UFC and the best striker that I had ever seen by far. And I, I knew that immediately from watching that fight. I mean, this guy is a monster. Monster! Hold on, speaking of best strikers, let's take it to current day. Israel Adesanya, Alex Perea. What did you think uh, about that fight? I mean, because those are two of the best strikers in the UFC, and it went it went surprising to me. I didn't think Paya was going to go out there and get the finish. Yeah, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I thought that I thought that uh, Israel Adesanya would win that fight. As a matter of fact, I was so confident that he would win that fight that I bet Max Crosby that he would win that fight. Max, uh, like I told him, okay, we bet usually in Jesse and Merrick and my myself, we bet like a dollar if we have any kind of bet regarding sports. You bet a dollar, and uh, you got to sign it and put it on a board in the, um, the sports office. So I told uh, Max, I was like, you know what, I'll go 20 bucks with you. He's like, 20? <laughs> he bet 50 bucks. I bet 20 because he's got the contract. I don't. And uh, I was real confident, man. I was talking trash to him on Twitter and everything else and DMs. And then 
Israel loses in that fourth round. I, I thought that he'd be able to maintain. He just needed to stay off the cage, man. He kept backing up into the cage. That was not a good look for him. Hey, but he kept backing into the cage. But also, those leg kicks, man, those calf kicks took away his mobility. It was a good game plan from Perea and his team, Glover Teixeira. But it was just a good game plan because Izzy, he just didn't have that mobility to escape him. And me personally, hey, if you're going to put the champ, if you're going to take away that title in a stoppage, I think you got to put the champ down. You remember Brock Lesnar versus Shane Carwin? Like, that should have been, been a stoppage in the first round. But they <laughs> let the champ, you know, fight his way out of it, and he came back in that second round and won. I'm just saying, you got to, like, stop the champ. That's my opinion when it comes to a stoppage in a championship fight. You know what? I'm not going to disagree with you, man. And Izzy, like he said, he, you know, he said immediately he was okay and everything else. Um, I, I agree, man. If you're going to go ahead and take the title from a champion, make him actually lose. I mean, make him actually hit the ground. He never even hit the ground, you know what I mean? So even though it's possible he could have been hurt much worse, but still, though, I, I think that there is a, an opportunity for him to come back. And, and the example that he used in that Kelvin Gaston fight, he got rocked even more than that, and he came back and won the fight. So I would agree with you. They should have let it go maybe a little bit longer. All right, so do you think that the UFC is going to set up the rematch immediately? Of course. Of course. As, as soon as Izzy wants it, I say immediately, because, you know, he likes to fight all the time. He's talked about that. I've watched a bunch of interviews with him. He says that he wants to probably fight sometime early next year. So I think that'll, yeah, that'll be dope, man. I'm looking forward to it. Unfortunately, um, I have a hard time seeing it going another way. I mean, as long as, long as if he can avoid the leg kicks and uh, avoid getting his, his mobility taken away from him, he can win the fight. Because, as you know, he was up 3-1 on all the cards, and he's won – to me, he's, he was winning the majority. He's won the majority of the rounds in every fight that he's had with him, but he's 0-3. <laughs> yeah, true that, but I'm thinking maybe if they could maybe maybe a quick turnaround and get him on that Australia card because I just want to see that. I want to see that fight take place in Australia, and I'm also excited about Islam versus Alexander Volkanovsky. Like, oh. man, do you, are you excited for that one? Do you think that oh. Volk has a chance? I, I more than think he has a chance. I think he wins. I, I, I'm sorry, man. I just don't. I just don't see the uh, obsession with Islam Makhachev, man. I just. I don't see it, man. Like the, the first. I don't know. To me, he's uh, a B two point oh, man. What? What's that? He's a B two point oh. That's what people are seeing. I, I, honestly, man, I was never all that big on Khabib. Like to me, like who did Khabib really beat? Connor's the biggest <laughs> name, obviously. Yeah, who has to be Khan? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like for real, for real. Like who is who is Khabib? Like to me, I would have liked to have seen Khabib beat Charles Oliveira when Charles Oliveira was at his best. But in that fight, Oliveira, he he, uh, he would hit. He went in there with his striking just getting hit too much. Um, I, I don't know, man. Like I was, I was, I wasn't impressed necessarily with how how easily Makhachev beat Oliveira, even though Oliveira was like my favorite fighter at the time. I was probably depressed, maybe. Maybe that's what it was. Um, but uh, I don't know, man. I, I think that Volkanovski wins this fight. One, because he's the most motivational speaking guy I've ever heard, I think, in the UFC. Man, I just believe everything that he says. And he does what he says, you know, he's going to do. But um, the fact that he says he's got the short legs, it's going to be hard keeping him down. I can believe that. There's no way in the world that Makachev is going to be able to strike with him like he did with Charles Oliveira. He's way too fast in and out. He's not going to get hit. 
if you made Max Holloway look like a novice, you can definitely make Makachev look like a novice as far as like in the striking. And the leg kicks, man, like regardless of Makachev with the takedown, man, you remember how Volkanovski leg kicked the crap out of Max Holloway in that first fight? Mm-hmm. I mean, he just, I, I, I can see that playing a part. I think he's way too athletic for Makachev in the size. I don't think that's a big deal. You being a guy that, that's got some bulk to him and uh, maybe a little bit vertically challenged, you, <laughs> understand, <laughs> you, you understand that Volkanovski, man, is a strong dude, and he once packed on a, a ton of weight, probably heavier than Makachev has ever been. So I don't think he's tripping about the size. All right, man, I agree with you on that. I'm not going to lie. I'm with you on that because I'm on the Volk train. Again, we're talking to Brian Salmer from News L3 here, News LV here in Vegas. And all right, so you mentioned Floyd Mayweather, that fight against Ricky Hatton. You, it was oh. an atmosphere like no other that you've been at before. What was, that, what was the hype coming into that? Because I'm not going to lie, like I wasn't that big onto the Floyd train yet. And also he had that layoff right after. I say when he was coming back off to that layoff, let's call it that, when he was fighting Marquez, that's when I was like, hey, Floyd's the best ever. Like, that's when I was getting into the hype of Floyd Money Mayweather. So take me through okay. like the hype leading up to that Ricky Haddon fight. Well, one of the things that, this is probably the biggest hype, because Floyd had just come off of being La Hoya. Mm-hmm. And obviously De La Hoya and Floyd fight was the biggest fight in boxing history. Uh, you know, as far as like the pay-per-views were bananas. And that kind of put him on the map to casual fans. Back then, you remember, De La Hoya, the Golden Boy, was like the biggest name in boxing, one of the bigger names in sports. So they had that. And then, remember this as well, Floyd was the first person to ever do the 24-7, that, that type of buildup to a fight. So they did the 24-7 with De La Hoya. It was the very first one ever. And then they did another 24-7 with Ricky Hatton. And Hatton was a guy who was very good on the mic. He could talk a lot. He's a good character. So they sold, they pumped up that fight more than any other fight that you know previously had been pumped up. And then you, the UFC, they took that, that blueprint from Mayweather, um, you know, as far as, uh, as far as like pumping up fights. So they had that, which was, um, that helped promote the fight. And then the fact that both the guys were undefeated, Ricky Hatton was undefeated. He's coming from England and over there in Europe, man, like boxing is huge. You know what I mean? Like it's really, really big. So that, uh, that, that, uh, hype coming into that fight was just bananas, man. I mean, Mayweather was Mayweather at that point, man. He was, he was really, he was the best boxer in, in the world as far as like in the ring, but then he became the, the biggest boxer outside of the ring. And that's what helped kind of hype that fight up. I know he got that 10th round knockout, but was there ever any question between like you and let's say like the national experts of, Hey, it's a toss up or was Mayweather always like the odds on favorite? No, nah, I mean, back then, like going into the, going into the fight with De La Hoya, he was, it might've been like a pick em fight. I mean, De La Hoya walked into the ring 170 pounds probably and Floyd was 150 when they walked into the ring. Right. So going into the Hatton fight, um, Floyd had just won this fight. Hatton was undefeated. You know, he had beat Costa Zoo, which is a big name in boxing. And people were really thinking, oh, man, Floyd, you know, he might have it. And it was at 140 pounds. It, it, man, this might be a really good fight. And the 24-7 really sold it as being competitive. And in that fight, it started, it, it was somewhat competitive. But in my mind, I thought there was, eh, I, I didn't really think, it was like 70, 70-30 maybe 80-20 in effect, I thought Floyd would win that fight. I didn't really think. But it was still intense, though. You know what I mean? Like, the intensity inside the, inside the MGM Grand Garden Arena was bananas. And, 
you know, like I know, man, like anything can happen in, in fighting. You know what I mean? Like anything can happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a great fight. It was, it was a great, great fight. All right, something that I want to detour to. You mentioned how anything can happen in fights. This past weekend, you were at the Tough Enough fights down at Circa, and I've got yeah. to ask you just about one fight in particular. MMA journalist turned fighter, Oscar Willis. <laughs> Everybody might know him from the Mac Life. You know, he's got the Connor connection. How did he look? Because I was over at the Apex for, you know, the, um, excuse me, the Derek Lewis fight that didn't happen. But some of the journalists are like, hey, we're all going to go see Oscar fight after this. You should come. And I was like, hey, I got to go watch AEW. Excuse me. But you were there. How did he look? Did he, I, I thought he get the, did he get the win? I heard he did. He won the fight. So I don't know Oscar. I do know the Mac Life. He does good work over there, I will say. Um, and I recognize him and whatnot, but uh, I, 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 he did win the fight. He came out nice and confident. He was nice and calm, um, you know, nice little leg kicks. And then in the begin- end of the first round, almost got knocked out. Like, he lost the first round badly. badly. If there was 10 more seconds in the round, he's, he's done. Uh, second round, he got a takedown. I personally thought that he lost the fight, but um, he ended up getting the win. And, and unfortunately, that night, at Tough Enough, man, they had some really, really, really bad decisions, including the main event, the heavyweight championship fight that they had. It was a bad decision, in my opinion. But uh, Oscar, I will say this. For a journalist, someone who's on TV, I don't know journalists maybe might be a little bit loose, but um, for a someone that, that, that covers fighting, him getting in there with, the, you know, the, what, the three-ounce, three-and-a-half-ounce gloves, um, no headgear, and actually fighting – Yo, mad respect, mad respect. He, he went in there and did that. Like, that's like a bucket list thing for me. And, uh, and as you probably know, I don't know if, if uh, Q told you, man, but I'm, I'm doing something like I'm doing like an amateur fight in February. No, he did so, not. So tell me more. Oh, yeah, man. I'm, uh, I'm actually headed to the gym right now, man. I'm, I'm about to go train, but um, I'm doing like an amateur boxing fight. It's called the Masters. You can look at me, masters.com or whatever, but it's like a, a sanctioned deal, man, where you fight somebody like your age, your, your experience level, your weight. Um, but it's not like, honestly, what he did is tougher than what I'm doing because he went three two-minute rounds. The one I'm doing is only three one-minute rounds. And you know, like, from being inside wrestling, uh, wrestling uh, ring that even one minute is a long time. Like, regardless, it's still a long time. Um, but yeah, man, I've been training. I've been boxing for like I don't know six months or so, um, and yeah, it's like a, it's, it's a bucket list thing for me, man. I've always loved the sport. I've always kind of trained and dabbled and whatnot. But I've been sparring and like boxing for real. So yeah, I'm about to do that here in February, man. All right, February 25th and 26th tournament date. Am I seeing that right? Man, you looked that up quick. You're you're very efficient <laughs> with, with the internet. <laughs> oh yeah, you look man. down the list. My name is on there. Las Vegas Masters Invitational. Oh man, I'm definitely going to be there. Oh man, man, I I don't know. Like I've been telling people, and I'm like, man, I don't know if I want anybody to go. But then I thought about how Oscar did that, and I think maybe it might help to have support and like a nice little maybe I help my adrenaline or help me, you know, not get knocked out or something. So. <laughs> oh man, I can't wait to man. You got anything else going on that you want to let people know about? Because I'm that. This is like I cannot wait for February now. It's going to be the Super Bowl and Brian Salmon's fight. Those are the two <laughs> biggest events in February. Oh man, that's right. That, is that Super Bowl weekend? Hold on, give me two seconds, vamp for me, and I'll figure oh, that out. Oh, I hope it's not Super Bowl weekend, man. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's going to be fun. I mean, we're wearing headgear. 
And, I mean, obviously, I could get hurt. I've seen guys get knocked out with headgear and everything else. But, you know, I'm, I'm, somewhat, I'm somewhat confident in what I've, what I've been doing. And, uh, like, my, like, I'm pretty decent <laughs> thus far. And I'll be training even harder in the month of January and whatnot, too. So, yeah, it's going to be something else. Oh, no, you're safe on Super Bowl weekend. That's going to be February 12th. So, okay, I mean, good. You're, you're good. You're not going to be competing against the Super Bowl. But we know, we know which event's going to be bigger here in Vegas. Don't you worry. Oh, man. <laughs> well, I mean, a few people know. Like, I haven't told a whole bunch of people. And most people I've told, I'm like, man, I don't know if I want you going. But after watching Oscar do it and kind of support that he had, I think it might be helpful to have people there. You know what I mean? It, it, can, it can help me out, I guess. So, yeah, and if yeah anything, go ahead and come. From what you said about the tough enough fights, it might sway the decision. Man, yeah, that was that was bad. That was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brian, man, thank you for coming on with me. Anything else that you got going on? Nah, man, just chat, watch News 3, man. Myself, Jesse Merrick, man, Sports Night on Sunday night. Probably one of the biggest things I got going on. You might have saw it on my Instagram, man, the Kicking It With Cole. Oh, yes, I have check seen that. that out, man. It's a, it's a great segment with where Raiders punter A.J. Cole. Each week, man, he does something with me specifically. And uh, we kind of edit and put it together. It, it's fun. It's, it's lighthearted, man. Check it out. All right, man, Brian. Thank you for coming on with me. My man, Damon, I appreciate you having me on. And that was Brian Salmon from News 3LV. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to a very good friend of mine, Jason Toctasian. And we're going to be talking some World Cup. Don't go anywhere. This is The Fight Game on 1230 The Game. Welcome back to The Fight Game. I'm pleased to introduce my next guest here on The Fight Game, but we're going to take a little detour as the World Cup is getting underway, and I've got the best person on the job for it, the man, the myth, the legend, Jason Takhejian from KCAU9ABC. Did I say that right, Jason? Yeah, you got that right, in Sioux City, Iowa. In Sioux City, Iowa, you know, got to show some love to the local station there. And for those of you that don't know, Jason and I were back together, you know, at UNLV, you know, starting that program up from the ground up when it came to doing play-by-play for basketball, football, you name it. I think you even did soccer, but was, yeah, I didn't know too much about soccer to be trying to do play-by-play <laughs> on the radio. I, you know, they say just fake your way through it. That was something that I was not prepared to do. But, you know, you did it all back at UNLV. Yeah, man, I try to do it all, and uh, you and I had some really good memories, especially with basketball, and I think we did some of the last uh, broadcasts on 91.5 FM. Yeah, man, you know what? HD1. Because, you know, they wanted to start, they started off hot, and they just said, no other students are going to be better than what we have now. (laughs) Yeah, you, me, Isaiah, uh, David Stepanian, you know? All people still working in the biz now. Yeah, man. And then we also did the flow sports, but now this is just becoming that we're the old guys that's talking like, remember when? I mean, remember when Sabrina Ionescu, you know, the number one pick in the WNBA draft, we were on her early. Yeah, exactly. We were. We were commentating her games before it was cool. (laughs) All right, now let's jump into the World Cup, Jason. I mean, I am the novice here. I am the person that, hey, it's every four years. I, I know that it's supposed to be in the summer, but now it's in the fall. Tell me, like, what I need to know. I know that the tournament's already underway. The USA, they have that one tie. Give me the rundown for the USA, you know, because I bleed that red, white, and blue every now and again. So give me the rundown on the USA team. Yeah, so the U.S. national team coming into this tournament is one of, if not the youngest team on average. So right off the bat, you got a lot of young players. You got a team that's fresh brand new you have 
DeAndre Yedlin as the oldest player. I believe he's 29 years old. So the veteran presence, you don't really have it. you got a lot of young players that are just breaking out in the European scene and not just here in the MLS in the United States. These guys are making their names known internationally, especially in Europe. We're talking about Tyler Adams and Brendan Aronson in the Premier League being coached by an American, Jesse Marsh, in Leeds United. you got Giovanni Reyna, who is tearing it up whenever he's healthy for Borussia Dortmund, and he's actually expected to play uh, against England. That's been uh, confirmed by Coach Berhalter. And, of course, you got Christian Pulisic with Chelsea, and he's arguably the star man. You, of course, you got Weston McKinney with Juventus in Italy. Essentially, what I'm trying to paint the picture here is you got an assortment of talent at a very young age. Okay, so the expectation, the expectation for the U.S. is all over the place. You don't really know what you're going to get. And the, considering the way the United States played just with the eyeball test, that 1-1 draw against Wales is tough. I'm not going to lie. Tough. So are we saying that they should have beaten Wales? Because something that I want to talk about, especially with Christian Pulisic, because I don't know how good he actually is. Is he one of those players where he's just a good fit on his club team? Should we expect him to be the superstar for the men's national team the way, the way let's say, a Messi is supposed to be for Argentina? Well, I would say so, just in different calibers. Just, just, just so we're, we're clear. Yeah, I'm not I'm saying not that he's compare. Messi, but for the yeah, U.S. Exactly, men's national team. Honestly, he's not. He's not. Yes. The reality is he is the top guy. He is the dog for the United States national team. He leads them in goals. Uh, across all the guys who are currently on the team, he has the most goals. I, I don't know the, the figure off the top of my head, but I think it was between 15 and 20 or something around that. I, I'm sure we can look it up. But regardless, that doesn't really matter. What matters is uh, – the club aspect that you were talking about. He has had a, an up-and-down situation at Chelsea, at his club. And a lot of uh, U.S. fans have actually been advocating for him to leave his club and join a team like Leeds, where he would be with other U.S. national team players. Well, obviously, that's just rumors, but you never know in the sport of soccer what can happen. Um, Christian Pulisic still is a great player, and he has continued to be used for Chelsea. And is coming into this World Cup with pretty good form. I mean, he, he got the assist to uh, Timothy Weah, or should we say Himothy Weah. <laughs> <laughs> he's already at Himothy status? Oh, yeah, he's, he's Himothy, Himothy Weah, bro. Come on. All right, again, we're taking he's, he's adopted that name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's going to take finish. more. It takes more than one goal in the World Cup to, be, to, be, to name yourself Himothy. I mean, I need more. Oh, 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 I agree. I agree, but. Just ride the wave. Just ride the wave. I mean, we'll take anything at this point. Again, we're t I'm talking to Jason Tatasian from KCAU9 ABC in Sioux City, Iowa. As Danny gives me a look of, you know, proudness that I pronounced all of that right because I was something before we got on the air. All right. So something, about, something I want to talk to you else about is the U.S. style of play. I've heard that they've gone to more of a, a counterattacking style, not going just full-out uh, attacking offense, but more playing like a counter style. How do you think that's going to fare for them in the World Cup? I, honestly, um, whenever you play counterattacking style of football or soccer, um, it's a coin toss. It, it's Honestly, it's a coin toss because it depends on the opponents that you're playing against. And honestly, that's a, that's a Greg Berhalter call that, hey, 
we know that we're going up against better teams. And if we use our youth, our strength, and our speed to our advantage, then maybe we can catch these guys on the counterattack. And that has worked for the United States to some degree. But we're gonna really we're gonna really find out what this United States national team is made of whenever they play England because they are the ones that are favored in the group to be on top. All right, let's talk about England. Let's talk about their national team. You know, I haven't been keeping up with them too much because to me, you know, I stopped caring about England after seventeen seventy six. But what can you tell me <laughs> about the English men's national team? Uh, they're really good, but they still have a lot of questions <laughs> because they recently have achieved some things that England fans haven't seen in decades, and that is reaching the semifinals of the World Cup in 2018 and reaching the finals in the Euro 2020. The thing is, they didn't come out victorious, and obviously everybody's going to be hypercritical about that, including being hypercritical about their coach. Well, the reality is they got a lot of guys right now. It's a, it's a healthy mix of guys in their prime and guys who are really young and really talented. And you got guys, for example, like Phil Foden, who is a regular starter for Manchester City, who are second in the Premier League. You got him coming off the bench to play like maybe 10, 20 minutes a game. You have so many young players. You have so many players in their prime that you expect or you anticipate the team to genuinely believe that they have a chance of winning the World Cup. Yeah. However, go ahead. You know, however, that's not the case because there's a lot of other teams that are favored just like England. One of those teams that is favored. You know what? Uh, let's go back to England because they do have some of the stars. Like I, I looked at their roster and their forwards. Hey, these are these are guys that I know: Harry Kane, Marcus Rashford. Where these are names that I do know. But what would be the flaw? What, how do you see the U.S. getting a path to victory against England on Friday? Don't play um, offensive football by crossing the ball and relying on headers because the English national team, they got guys that are going to be sniffing out crosses like Harry Maguire, and the U.S. just doesn't have that manpower to outmuscle the English national team. So keep the game on the ground. Keep the game on the ground and play it to your advantage with your speed if you're the U.S., and don't give away possession in any matter. You know, that's a pretty obvious statement to make, but especially against the England national team, the margin for error is just so slim. You cannot afford to give away possession needlessly. I see what you're saying. So I see maybe why they play now this counter-attacking style because for them to succeed in the World Cup, that's how they're going to have to play. I'm not saying play scared, but play um, conservatively. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just the reality. We're not talking about one of the favorites to win the World Cup in the United States, if, if I'm being completely you know, objective here. Um but that's what it's going to take is grinded out victories. If the U.S. somehow gets a goal, learn from their mistake against Wales and don't commit these silly fouls in the box, for example, or don't give away possession because if you've got that 1-0 lead, you've got to do everything in your power to maintain it because this is the World Cup. You've got three games that are guaranteed. That's it. The group stage, you have three games guaranteed. And the first game... Winners of the first game, I believe 70 to 80%, I forget the exact percentage, 70 to 80% of teams who win the first game of the World Cup go to the knockout rounds. 
All right, so let's move on to the favorites now. Some of the big names, I know that Argentina was supposed to be a favorite until they lost to Saudi Arabia, but like you said, they still got some more games there. I know that, you know, stars don't equate to wins at the World Cup. Messi still hasn't gotten one, but is France, are they the defending, they're the defending champs? Are they the favorite as well? Yeah, France are also the favorites. Um, they're coming into this World Cup with the understanding, and they know, they're aware of the uh, World Cup curse. And that is the defending champions in the last three World Cups, at least, have been knocked out in the group stages. In 2010, the World Cup champions, Italy, got knocked out in the group stage. In 2014, Spain got knocked out. And in the last World Cup, Germany got knocked out. Um, France are coming in as a you know, World Cup fa- uh, favorites, but they're also the champions. And that's been a monkey on the back of a lot of teams because it's a matter of you know, how much change occurs to a national team and France are coming into this World Cup with a lot of injuries, but it hasn't really changed the core, the core of this team. The, the midfield has been the, the most compromised, but outside of that, this is still the same old, same old French national team. They're scary. <laughs> this game against Australia, it's the first game in the World Cup, but it's convincing. It's a convincing win. All right, so give me some other teams that maybe are flying under the radar or maybe just the average fan that doesn't know, that just knows Messi, Ronaldo, that they aren't looking out for. I mean, obviously, you've got to talk about Spain because they have a new uh, era of young players that are coming in that are playing on the biggest stages in Europe right now, and they're, they're getting trusted. You're going to see some 19-year-olds, some 20-some-year-olds, some 17-year-olds even, uh, making some debuts for uh, Spain and making their World Cup debuts. So they're going to be a very interesting team to follow. Another team to follow for me, uh, even though I personally don't know if they're going to make a lot of noise, is Belgium. Because That's my pick, baby. Been talked about, been talked about for so long. They're, they're golden generation for almost a decade now. And people think that this is, this is it, really, for guys like Kevin De Bruyne, uh, Romelu Lukaku, who's going to miss the first two games of the World Cup. And uh, Eden Hazard, who has been a shell of himself ever since going to Real Madrid. Hey, man, that that was the team I was picking, and you really just like you know, poo pooed that real quick, man. I was like, ah, man, Belgium. And I, <laughs> and I, mean, I didn't even get to the defense. <laughs> all right, uh, because because go that, ahead, that's go the for one, it. that's the one credit I can give Belgium is they got the best uh, goalkeeper in the tournament, arguably. Yeah, so I mean, goalkeeping. I mean, you keep them from scoring that. That wins games, right? Come on, man. Like, you know what? I'm still, I'm still confident in my pick. You know, you're not going you're not gonna to ruin this for Hey, I, I, I don't want to poo-poo on your trade. I'll, I'll let you keep the pick, but um, my, my opinions are my own. <laughs> <laughs> but you're the expert, though, so you do know more than me. Again, we're talking to Jason Toctasian from KCAU9 ABC in Sioux City, Iowa. All right, Jason, only a few more questions for you, but I, I've got to ask you about this. I know it's the stuff that no one wants to talk about, but the actual – human rights issues, or the FIFA, or FIFA even awarding this World Cup to Qatar. Could you speak about that a little bit, or what have you heard or seen from what's actually going there, going on there from a fan perspective? It's actually funny, because back in the day when you and I were in UNLV uh, in 2018, I remember uh, in one of our journalism classes, I basically took the reins on a project to uh, end the semester. I forget what the class was, but I did a story on why Qatar should not be hosting the World Cup in 2022. I mean, we're talking about bribes that are well-documented that swayed the votes to vote for Qatar 
instead of the United States because it was either going to be Qatar or it was going to be us for 2022. In hindsight, you know, it, it seems like it's going to be better to have a World Cup in 2026 instead of now because we're just getting out of COVID. There's still, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, concerns when it comes to the world and finances and stuff like that. But the reality is Qatar does not deserve to even have the World Cup in the first place. But even if they got the World Cup fairly, who's to say they weren't going to go about the same practices in terms of hiring migrant workers? You know what I mean? And it's a lot of uh, back and forth with Qatari officials about, oh, these numbers are you know, inaccurate in terms of uh, being reported that 6,500 migrant workers lost their lives as a result of being on these working sites or you know after the fact they have a, a cardiac arrest and they're just denying that well the reality is there's still people who have survived working on these uh, buildings and it's time for journalists in that part of the world to uh, you know be able to give these people a platform to uh, have their voices heard and the root the reality is this is not just Qatar for the World Cup this is Qatar as the city and a lot of cities in that part of the world. We're talking about, you know, rich oil countries being able to build up like that. How are they able to build up that fast, just like Qatar? It opens up a different dialogue. All right, so thank you for informing me on that as well. And let's end with a fun one. I'm not saying that maybe that the team that always wins has the best player, but who's going to be the player of the World Cup in your mind? So maybe that does mean you're going to tip your hat, you tip your hand and tell us who's going to win the World Cup as well. Hmm. Okay, so it's going to be uh, it's tough because going into this World Cup, I had Argentina to win it. Um, but, of course, just because they lost the first game doesn't mean that they're you know out of this completely. They still got two games. They could still get six points and qualify. Um, and one redeeming thing is the fact that Mexico and Poland tied. And they didn't look good today. Not, neither team looked good today, especially Lewandowski missing the penalty was not a good look. And then Mayo Ochoa being inevitable, like Thanos. But that's, just, that's besides the point. Um, to answer your question, I'm, I'm still going to back my pick, despite them losing today, is Argentina winning. I'm going to still pick them. And the, the player to watch for this tournament, well, he already has a goal. And his name is Jude Bellingham. He's the midfielder for England, who's 19 years old. First right, ever yeah. World Cup game. And he scores a goal. Giving me some prodigy watch there. Okay, man, love a prodigy. So somebody that I could just say, hey, man, when he was 19, I was already in on it. All right, Jason. But thanks to Jason. I'll give you the credit. (laughs) I'll give you the credit when I'm like, hey, man, I was in on the English national team way before anybody else was. And that'll be a complete lie. Or just specifically Jude Bellingham and his career, man. That kid's going to be special. What's his club team? Uh, he is currently on Borussia Dortmund in Germany, but he's been linked to a multitude of teams like Liverpool, Real Madrid, Manchester City, Manchester City, Manchester United, Chelsea, just about every club that you can name. Oh, so you're telling me he's going to get transferred soon, so I should hold off on buying the jersey. Yeah, 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 hold off. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, Jason, thank you so much for coming on with me today, man. Let everybody know what you got going on. Uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm still, you know, anchoring, reporting, and... Uh, it's still early in my career. I'm, I'm still 24. I'm a year and a half into this. I still got another year and a half on this contract. I still got a lot to learn. So, you know, you just follow me at Real Jason Sarkis on uh, Instagram and Twitter, and you'll catch up with me and see what's going on in that crazy life. All right, man. Hang on to that blue check while you can. 
I'm trying. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good one. All right, you too. Bye-bye. And that's just about going to do it for us here today on The Fight Game. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. I almost forgot to mention, we didn't get to talk about... I'm begging you, Regal. Please, I'm begging you, sir. I am begging you to say it. It's over. Do the right thing, Regal. Well, here it is. War Games! That's right. War Games is coming to the WWE main roster in H We Trust. Triple H is bringing War Games to Survivor Series. You're going to have two War Games matches. I almost forgot it, but I didn't want to leave out Survivor Series War Games. You're going to have the Bloodline taking on the Brawling Brutes plus Kevin Owens and Drew McIntyre. And on the women's side, you're going to have Team Bianca that's featuring Bianca Belair, Asuka, Alexa Bliss, Mia Yim, and a mystery partner taking on Damage Control. And that's going to be Damage Control with Nikki Cross and Rhea Ripley. What more do I need to say? And there's plenty more that's going to be on the Survivor Series card, but we can't talk about all of it now. Again, I want to say thank you to my guests, Brian Salmon, Jason Toctasian. Check out Brian's fight. I'm going to be looking for that. February's right around the corner. Can't wait to see him put the gloves on. And the World Cup. Me and Jason are going to be talking about that. I'm going to do a follow-up with Jason as soon as like the knockout stages are over or what do you, the knockout round is over and we get to the next stage. We're going to be talking to Jason again as, hey man, I'm going to keep be keeping you updated on the fight game and the fight for the World Cup. This has been the fight game on 1230 The Game. Stay safe and protect yourself at all times, everybody.